0: with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to read the entire book of Genesis. I'm just kidding. <laughs> do you want to do that? Read the whole entire book of Genesis? Right now? I will read it for you uh, in as monotone of a voice as I possibly can with the exact same cadence the entire time. And we'll see, yeah, I'll read it just like Robbie would read it for you. I wouldn't have said that except he pointed to himself and said, yes, that's me doing that. <laughs> so, here we go. We just finished up uh, the epistles of John. Uh, I, I pray that uh, the epistles of John have, have been a, a wonderful encouragement to your life. I know my wife said that she was sad to see uh, the epistles of John go and be done with the epistles of john and you know uh our goal large goal kind of like our main goal in going through the epistles of john was that our people that you guys uh rusty and i desire that you would walk away uh with assurance of your faith that you would have some objective you know somewhat objective means to to evaluate life and go am i truly a follower of christ and then if I am at the end of the day found persevering in my faith and assured in my salvation, then I need to live like it. Um, because a lot of us live as though we're not actually following Christ, not in the sense that necessarily we, not necessarily that we look worldly, evil, wicked and such, but that uh, we don't live with a, with a power that comes from the assurance that we indeed are held in the hands of God, and that nothing can pluck us out of those hands. And, um, so, uh, I know from many people that I've talked to that coming out of the epistles of John, uh, that that has been the case. And so, I pray that that's uh, been the case for all of you, um, that you walk away either assured, hopefully assured of your salvation, but but also assured if you're not a follower of Christ, I would. Prayers that you would have that figured figured out, that you would at least know one way or the other. Um, so, with that, we have the beginning of a new series. Uh, we're going to take the next ten weeks to journey through the Pentateuch. Um, we are going to, as, as you guys know, our kind of our philosophy in preaching is that we want to fly at different altitudes above different texts and. We don't always want to be in like four, five, ten verses and kind of dig in there and nice and, you know, go through all the little details and such. Uh, we don't want to just always do that in such a way that we kind of miss the big picture of Scripture. At the same time, we don't want to just float across the big picture of Scripture and miss all the glorious details as well. Uh, Now, admittedly, my kind of default in preaching is verse by verse, like 10 verses at a time, details, like I enjoy that, Um, and I know Rusty does too, so it's actually a stretch for us to have to step back up from the text and try to fly at a bigger altitude, uh, at a higher altitude, so that we don't miss the big picture of Scripture as well. So... What we're going to do over the next 10 weeks is we're going to preach through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, clearly, we're not going to do justice to this text, as if we could ever do justice to any text. Uh, but we're certainly not going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of Genesis. Otherwise, uh, we'd call these like sermon marathons, uh, and we're already here for quite a while. Um, but if we were going to do that, we'd be here till this evening. Uh, You know churches have like Sunday morning, Sunday evening service? We just call it the Sunday service, right? All day preaching. Um, Which may not be a bad idea one of these days, but uh, nevertheless, Genesis. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend roughly, at this point the plan is, two weeks per book of the Pentateuch. Now, with that said, I need to encourage you to make sure that you have done your reading prior to coming in here, if you've not read the first, at the very least this morning, you got a little bit of a break, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and I mean freshly read those, then you're going to strongly, I think, uh, struggle this morning as I teach, because I'm going to assume reading. Uh, If you don't like reading, oh well, our God revealed himself to you in words. Uh, So, we need to read. If you need help reading, we can work on that. But we got to read. Uh, so I'm going to assume that. Because here's the deal. Typically our, our preaching is expository in nature. An expository in nature, basically, I, I, the definition I like to use for that is the content and the intent of the passage determines the content and the intent of the sermon. Well here, the content and intent of the passage, we're not going to read the whole thing. But nevertheless, still the content and the intent of the passage, which happens to be 11 chapters long, is going to determine the content and intent of the sermon. Make sense? So typically, the content and intent of like 10 verses would determine the content and intent of the the sermon. So we would read through all 10 verses. Well, here we don't have time to read through the entire passage because it's 11 chapters. Or like next week will be... Thirty-eight chapters. Um, so next week, you'll need to have read the rest of Genesis because uh, I'm going to assume. Basically, we're just going to pull passages out of there, but they're a part of a bigger passage. That's the difference between like just little topical preaching or whatever. We're not just gonna we're not just pulling these passages and going, "How can I make a sermon out of this verse here and this verse and this verse and this verse and this verse?" No, these verses are simply collections of the bigger passage that we don't have time to take this morning to read the entire thing. All that to say, still expository, but make sure you have read, because I'm going to assume that in preaching. So, with that said, Pentateuch, uh, What is basically Pentateuch is the Greek word for uh, basically five scrolls, essentially. Penta meaning five, tuke can be translated in Greek as scrolls. Basically, the Pentateuch is the Greek word for the five scrolls. Um, there's other names for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the Torah, the Law, the Books of Moses. Those are all legitimate names. We've just decided to go with the most difficult name of those and call it the Pentateuch. Uh, you know, for the heck of it. Uh, it. just sounded cooler, I guess. But nevertheless, we're going to study the Torah, uh, which is the, the Hebrew name for the books, the first five books, uh, or the books of Moses. Those are, again, common names. Uh, I want to remind us, again, flying high. Um, I also want to, to tell you that um, as we work through this, uh, a book that Rusty and I are using as, as kind of some aid as we work through this is Mark Dever's Old Testament overview book. Uh, it's just a real helpful book um, that I'd encourage if you want to get a nice book to put in your library um, that book we're going to at some point pull um, you know utilize some of his outlines uh, through this and, and if we're going to do like a kind of like a, a specific citation you know I'll make sure to say you know, hey Mark Dever made this comment and I thought this was very helpful for us so just want to uh, throw that out there uh, lastly again read, 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 read Next week, you'll need to read the rest of Genesis. That's why I tried to tell a bunch of you to read the half of Genesis this week and half of Genesis next week. That way you don't get stuck reading 38 chapters in one week. Uh, For some of us, that's like, woo, 38 chapters. To give you an idea, it took me 11 minutes walking on my treadmill, sorry, 30 minutes walking on my treadmill to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I timed it just so that I would know how long you were being ex- like expected to read. <laughs> Robbie is looking at me, and, and by ESP, he are, you know, he's saying it'd take me two hours to read it. So if you uh, are having a pity party on how long it takes you to read, just go talk to Robbie and his perseverance, okay? All right. Okay. Introduction to Genesis. Let's kind of just very quickly... Chapters 1 through 3, if you want to write down a couple notes here, chapters 1 through 3 is essentially God, creation, Adam and Eve, and the fall. God, creation, Adam and Eve, and the fall. That's chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 11, so basically both of these first two breakups will be what we'll talk about this morning. Chapters 4 through 11 is then from Adam to Abraham. In there includes the flood and the tower of Babel. Or Babel. However you want to pronounce it. I've seen it both ways. And then 12 through 50 is essentially Abraham and his family. That's the big breakup, three major sections of the book of Genesis. Genesis will take us from the place Where you have God's people in God's place under God's rule all the way through the fall, various trials, like Cain and Abel, the flood, and faithfulness, all the way to the point where God is going to bring His people into God's place under His rule. There's a lot that happens, both in quantity and in quality, in 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. There's a lot that happens, particularly just in the first three chapters of Genesis. And with that said, I I have to admit, there are so many things in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that I would love for us to preach on, um, but uh, we're not going to get to at this point. Things like foundation for biblical manhood and womanhood as addressed in Genesis 1, um, 2, and 3. And uh, issues of, um, you know, roles and... And such issues of the dignity of humanity and things like that that are addressed here in the very beginning that that we just don't have time and um, so I'd encourage you as you're reading take the time because not many of us are going are ever going to sit down and go I think I'll read through Leviticus that sounds wonderful to me but if someone says hey you need to read through Leviticus this week then take that opportunity to like actually dig into Leviticus not just to get your quote reading done uh, take the time that when you're being motivated and pushed to read a book that you wouldn't typically go to to read on your own, take that opportunity to spend some good time in there. So like in Genesis, I'd encourage you to go back and look through chapters 1, 2, and 3 and and, and ask, what does this mean for manhood and womanhood? What does this mean for marriage? What does this mean for various other things? So I'd encourage you to do that. So this week, we're simply going to work through chapters 1 to 11 and then next week we'll do chapters 12 through 50. Um, the three major events that we'll talk about to this morning is the creation, the fall, and the flood. Creation, fall, flood. And our main characters this morning will be God, Adam, and Noah. God, Adam, and Noah, our main characters. Now, the overarching theme that I think that we see. So when we step back, guys, when we step back and look at the text from a high altitude, and we're trying to look down on 11 chapters, and we we have to step back and go, what is the content and the intent of these 11 chapters? Basically, what is the big picture being painted? What is the big theme being presented in these 11 chapters? What is the totality of this selection of verses trying to communicate to us and to the world. What is God saying through this passage that consists of 11 chapters? And I think the overarching picture or theme that we see throughout the book of Genesis, so not just 11 chapters, so next week's sermon is going to be pretty similar to this as well, but what we see at the very least for right now, this morning, chapters 1 through 11, is that in this book of Genesis, in these chapters, that God establishes a picture of His character throughout the world that He has created? And that God uses creation to display His character. God uses creation to display His character. You say, isn't his character displayed throughout all of the scriptures? Yeah. I would agree with that statement. Well, what do we have in the beginning? If you study scripture, you have, overall, a progressive revealing of God's character. God doesn't reveal all of himself, everything that pertains to God. He does not reveal all of that in Genesis. Genesis. But it increases, like the revelation of himself and how much he exposes of himself and tells the world of himself increases as revelation is given. Until we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. And and so, in the very beginning here, what's important is that God displays and God proclaims to the world some very basic tenets, very basic aspects of his character. Things that are crucial as a foundation for God and his creation to continue and to begin in relationship here. So I think what we have, among many, 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 many things that happen in Genesis 1 through 11, the big thing that we see in the entire book of Genesis is that God uses creation to display his character. Here in the beginning of Genesis, we'll cover some major stories, right? Creation, fall. Cain and Abel, Noah, Flood, Tower of Babel. And God begins to paint this picture of His character right from the very beginning. So just very quickly, there's some aspects of His character. We're not going to spend much time on these, but some of these consist of, one is, He is self-existent. We see that God is self-existent. If God is self-existent, He is the one that created the world, but no one created Him. Right? There's nothing in here that says, and God came into existence and then He created the world. No, the text assumes the self-existence of God. He was always been. Everything in the world is dependent upon Him, and yet He is dependent upon no one. He is self-existent. He is also self sustaining. The dependence can also be, uh, the, the lack of dependent upon anyone is also true of self sustaining. He is the one who sustains the rest of creation. Nothing sustains him. He is self sustaining. It's part of the picture of God that we have painted for us here in the beginning. God is self sustaining, that He is providential. That he alone is providential. He is the one who, I'm sorry, that's the, the previous one. He provided for the earth. We see this picture painted. He provided for the earth everything that it needed and continues to need today in order to flourish. Everything. Creation. Just think about the fact that he gave Adam and Eve everything that they needed to live including the very breath that brought Adam to life. We also see that God is holy that he will ju- he will be the judge of his creation. So, God uses his creation to display his character. What are the main character aspects that we see in chapters 1-11? through And that's where we want to, even though we see the self-existence of God, the self-sustaining of God, that He's providential. I would say that those three, those are big deals and those are things that we see, but I don't know that those are the overarching aspects of God's character that we see revealed. They're just as important. But what do we see God saying over these 11 chapters? again, referring to our, the revelation of God in increasing clarity, if you will. That God increases the clarity at which we understand and see Him and who He is through Scripture as He reveals Himself more clearly through His Word. So the question then is what is it that God deems as most fundamental and most basic to his character, that he would choose to reveal such things first. What is so crucial that God would choose to reveal of himself from the very beginning, that we should see as fundamental and basic to the person of God, and fundamental and basic in our understanding of God, and of course, then subsequently, how then should we react and respond and live in relationship with those, that God who has revealed himself as such. The first thing I think we see in the book of Genesis is that God is holy and will most certainly judge sin. That God is holy and most certainly judge sin. Will most certainly judge sin. I hope there's a, a weightiness to that statement, even in your own mind, as we think about it this morning, that God is holy. Like You don't have to get far into the text to see that God is holy, and that His holiness demands judgment, and sin demands God's judgment. You know, we live in a culture today that wants a holy God. I mean, you're going to, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone that you work with, someone that you go to school with, one of your neighbors. You're going to be hard-pressed to find someone that says, yeah, I don't want a holy God. I, I want one that's, that's a robber and a thief and a swindler and a cheat. and like, I mean, that's your other alternative. No, they want a holy God. They, they want a God who does right things a God that is righteous. When, I mean, they may not use those terms to describe Him, but, but they don't want a God who does bad things. That's why people say, well, if God you know, issued these calamities on earth, I can't worship that God, because they view that as an unholy act, as a wrongful act that God would allow or, oh my gosh, even ordain some sort of horrific calamity. The, the fact that God would you know, open up the floodgates and let the water pour in. Like, that would make him very unholy to our culture. No one wants a God who is anything less than perfect. We want a God who will hold accountable the really evil people. Like, like you're, again, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who at least ascends to God or the, a higher being that doesn't desire that higher being to hold those accountable for the evil that they've done, the bad people, right? Just in case they slip through our government and, and our judicial system. We want a God who will do that. We want a God who also will reward us when we are good, right? Like, who that you work with doesn't think, I will get to heaven as long as I do enough good. I mean, most of them do, unless they're an atheist or something to that effect. I mean, clearly there's exceptions to that. But the majority of people at this point, and in a lot of our circles, would say, yeah, as long as I do enough good, I'm going to get to heaven. What are they saying? They're saying that I want a judge who's going to recognize the good that I do and award me accordingly. Now, of course, I, now, some of the assumptions there is I get to define what is good, and I get to just, you know, define what is enough good, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they want a judge who's going to say, you've done enough good. What well, we do not want, though, is a God who points out when we do something wrong, nor a God who issues punishment accordingly. We don't want that. And I would venture to say a lot of us in this room fuss And even have angst at the fact that God would point out something wrong that we do. That God would hold us accountable and issue punishment and discipline accordingly. But isn't this interesting? Think with me for a second. We want a God who is perfect and a God who is judge. But only a judge when it comes to judging that we are good and deserving of some sort of reward. We want a God who's holy who is a judge, but we just want Him to judge us when it fits our desires. You know, we too often want a God who is holy without a God who is a judge. Let me show us a couple places where this kind of shows up maybe in our own lives, where we want a God who's holy, but we don't want a God who is a judge. Sometimes I think this shows up in our distaste for the doctrine of election and predestination. How could God be holy and send people to hell? That's the question we ask. How could God be righteous and send people to hell? He's supposed to be a loving, perfect God. I think the better question is how could a holy God not send all people to hell? That's the better question to ask. So I think this shows up. We want a holy God without a God who is a judge. And first of all, that shows if we have a distaste for election, it shows that we don't probably don't understand really what holiness is. But we certainly don't want a judge because then that judge is going to send people, send people to a place that uh, that we don't think that they should go. This also shows up, I think, the desire to want a God who is holy. Versus a God who is a judge that shows up when we don't want to be holy in our lives. We like having a God who is holy and provided a Savior who is holy, right? I mean, we like those ideas, right? God's holy, Jesus is holy, awesome, I believe in Jesus, so that's good for me. But if God is judged too, then that means that we have to be holy as well. So we want a God who is holy, but not a God who is a judge, I just want to kind of warn us of some of these things as we think through this part of the passage. You see, Adam and Eve wanted a God who was holy, but they wanted to be the judge. They wanted a God who was perfect, that would provide for them, that would give them everything they wanted, but when it came to the knowledge of good and evil, they wanted to be the ones who declared what was morally right and what was morally wrong. Right? Remember that from Gospel and Kingdom, moral, legislative, autonomy? They wanted to be the ones to legislate what was good and what was wrong, what was righteous and what was evil. So they wanted God to be the provider of all things for them, to care for them and everything, but then they wanted to be their own judge. They wanted to declare what was right and what was wrong. So in the fall, in the fall, so Adam and Eve, they, God creates them, Then they decide to exercise this autonomy of God. And then we see God display this aspect of His character, His demand for holiness, and His subsequent demand for judgment. Think about this with me. As Adam and Eve eat of the tree, God enacts the judgment that He promised. Right? Right? I mean, a lot of us think, okay, you know, the fall, it was a terrible thing, and, and now we're just trying to get back to, you know, restoration. No, we need to stop and think for a moment. What happened at the fall? Not just the fact that human beings, but let's not begin, right? Let's not begin with what happened to Adam and Eve. Let's begin with what did God do? What did God display? Why was what God did demanded? What demanded this part this response by God. You see, God in His holiness cannot leave sin unjudged. It must be judged. The sin must be held in account. So He judges their actions as sin. The very fact that God now follows through with what He promised is Him saying, Yes, indeed, what I told you would be sin, you now have committed, and it is indeed sin. You have committed the sin, and here is the judgment. Here is also your punishment for that sin. Here is the price that you must pay. So He then carries out the punishment that they were warned of. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis 3, verse 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and the rest of the garden of Eden he placed... Uh, I'm sorry, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard. And I cannot read this morning. Let's try that again. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I want us to stop for just a moment. Just in your mind for just a moment, think about what just happened. Where was Adam and Eve? What was God's judgment? You don't need to answer this out loud, but what was God's judgment what were they, what, were this, what was their punishment? Think about that for just a second. Like I think for many of us, the idea of Adam and Eve being driven from the garden is like you with an unlimited gift card being driven away from Walmart. That simply at Walmart, I can get everything I need for life and God, I mean, for life and living, right? I got everything I need. And then now my punishment is I'm going to have to work for everything that I need. Like for many of us, that's, that's what the picture of the garden and the judgment of God in response to the sin of Adam and Eve looks like. I don't mean to be mean, but I think that is terribly misses the point. Think about this with me. Adam and Eve were living in the presence of Almighty God, not Sam, right? Not Wally World, owner and beginning, whatever his name is, founder. There we go. They were living in the presence of God. Almighty God, unhindered, unbroken relationship with the Almighty God, their Creator. Everything they needed was provided. Imagine if you were there. Everything you needed was provided for you, and it came forth with very little effort, if any, from you. No thorns, no thistles, no sin, no shame, no guilt, no hiding from God. No unsatisfying worship. No feeling empty. No depression. No physical pain. No hurt. Just simply unhindered, ultimately satisfying worship and walking with the Creator of the universe. That's what was in the garden. Now imagine this, you're removed from all of this eternal and infinite goodness in judgment for your sin. I think we too often fail to see the holiness and the judgment of God when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. There was real sin, real humans, a real God, a real holiness, and a real judgment. Now, they will face death. They will face pain. They will experience sorrow. They'll have to work. Their hands will be broken and bruised and beaten and torn. They will find themselves worshiping things that will leave them empty. They will now hide from God when their sin comes into reality. Now they no longer walk in unhindered relationship with God, but now there is a chasm that spreads between them and God. Everything, think about this with me, everything about this life that you should rightfully hate is now yours in judgment for your sin. We should rightfully hate sorrow rightfully hate sin, rightfully hate shame, we should rightfully hate unsatisfying worship, we should rightfully despise and hate the feeling of emptiness that comes when we worship something other than God, we should hate and despise physical pain and depression, and now all of that is ours. In God's judgment for our sin. So we see in the garden a holy God issuing a holy and just judgment and carries out the rightful punishment for that sin. It's not just a banishment from Walmart with an unending and everlasting gift card. It is walking with your Creator and now no longer, instead of walking with Him, you get to walk with everything else. God is holy, and He is a judge. So we see this in the fall. The second place we see this in Genesis 1 through 11 is in the flood. We see a holy God who judges. We see this in the flood. After Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, sin continues to permeate the world, right? Like, sin just begins to increase and increase and increase. I mean, it didn't take long until we get to Cain and Abel, and, and and now there's murder that has taken place. But before too long, we get to Genesis 6. If you want to turn there with me, Genesis 6, 11 through 13, we see that, we see this, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Guys, six chapters. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with Violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So once again, let's stop for a moment. And let's think through the flood together here. Once again, we see that God is committed to his holiness. So he let, with patience and kindness and mercy, the sin progress and progress. I mean, every moment, at every moment that passes by that we persevere in our sin is mercy by God for us to turn from our sin. So years and years and years go by, the world continues to persevere, not in holiness, but in their sin. And God says, I will destroy them with the earth. Think about, think about this with me. Think about how terribly we tell the story of the flood, even with our kids. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't in an age-appropriate sense share the story of the flood with our kids, okay? I got that. But think about this. We tell the story of the flood as if it was some cute ark that had cute little animals in it, and God saved Noah and his family. What a wonderful little thing, right? God walked each cute animal into the boat. You know, He wanted to make sure that we had puppy dogs today and he wanted to make sure that we had giraffes and you know and I wonder how they all fit in the ark and like you know, we debate, you know, those kind of things like how how, how could it you know, how could how could all the animals have fit in there and man, what do you do with all the poo, you know? Like how did that work? Um and they were shoveling that out for days and days. And I bet the thing stunk, right? Like we've all had these discussions, right? You know? Think about this with me. The flood would have been horrific. It would have been like straight from a horror film. God wipes out almost the entire human race, save Noah and his family. God, in judgment, kills them all. Dead animals floating everywhere. Bodies being eaten by the fish of the sea. You know, there are four great judgments in Scripture. One's the fall, second the flood, third the cross, and fourth the consummation. The flood was God's great judgment on this earth. Why? Because He's holy and it requires judgment. When you think of the flood, when you think of the flood, I like what Mark Dever he said this. He, when you think of the flood, you need to see that the water covering the earth as it was an expression of God's wrath against sinful man. Think about this. You know, we talk about the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus at the cross, right? Think about that. Well, back here, we have the wrath of God being poured out literally in water on the entire earth and every person that was living save Noah and his family. We don't see the ark and the flood as some little cute story. that's that's portrayed with bright colors and a felt board. It was God's judgment on the earth for their sin because God is holy and demands holiness. See the water as God's hatred for sin and His unparalleled commitment to His holiness. See the water as God's judgment on the world. Now again, mom and dad, now, don't go home to your two-year-old and say, you know, God just kind of smited them all, you know? <laughs> I mean, we need to share this in age appropriate, but the thing is, is don't, like, don't ever leave out this, like, don't leave out this part ultimately. Like, when the age, when the time has come, share what's appropriate. Share the text, not just share what you think is cool about the story. But share that, that God is a holy God and He demands holiness. And, and so in judgment for the world's sins, God wiped them off the face of the planet. I think according to the text, it would be safe to say that God's judgment of the water was these people on earth now being issued and, uh, I'm sorry, ushered in to hell. That's what happens at the flood. It's more than a cute bath time story. Right? Genesis 8.21 says this, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Here we have at the beginning of the Bible God saying, I am holy, I will judge my creation for their sin. Now we cannot avoid what Genesis is saying. There is a God, he is holy, he has made us with meaning and purpose and we have failed to live and love as we were made to do. This is a clear picture painted for us at the beginning of Genesis. I was talking to a a Catholic the other day, a big C Catholic. And he told me that we were all generally good and generally deserving of salvation because in the beginning we were all made in the image of God. Uh, We we debated that for a little while and. the Came to honestly no conclusion. I wish I'd have thought about this. And but if man is generally good and generally deserving of salvation, because we were made in the image of God, then how come God chose to save Noah and send the rest to hell? Here at the very beginning. This is—I think it's is a question. I don't. I, I wish I could have asked him that question. But God here judges man and saves Noah. So because God is holy, he will come in Christ one day to judge our sins. Look at what Jesus commanded us to preach, right? Look at what Jesus commanded us to preach. You don't need to turn there, but Acts 10 verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus says, preach to the people and testify that I have been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. One day God will come in Christ to judge our sins. And I think when we look at the creation story... We like to see how wonderful our God is in creation, like, oh, this is so beautiful. God's creation is beautiful, and indeed it is, and we should marvel at the magnificence that is displayed in God's creation. We certainly should, but we should not look at creation without being able to see our sin as well. We must see both of those things, God's magnificent beauty in His creation and then see our dreadful sin in the midst of that as well. Not that He created it, but our choosing to walk away from Him. So, how's that for a start to a new series? The holiness of God, the judgment of God. You know, as I think about this and I think about just how our culture thrives on things that make us happy. Um, I'm tempted to just leave the sermon right here and let us go home and see what we worship. Uh, And if I could get some sort of like, uh, you know, uh, info or data on what our hearts thought about for the next couple hours, it would be a really awesome test case for us to hear the judgment and the holiness of God and then to walk away. But what's wonderful is that, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm not going to do that today because I don't think the text does that either. Because in the midst of God's holiness and judgment on our, of our sin, in the midst of that, we see God is marvelously merciful as well. So again, if the content and intent of the passage determines the content and intent of the sermon, then God is not displayed in chapters 1-11 through as just a holy God who must have right, just judgment for the sin that is committed against Him. But the text also portrays God as merciful. As merciful. And And I hope for all of us there's a weightiness again to the fact that God was merciful. And He's been merciful to us, merciful to you, merciful to me. Let's think about this. In the garden, in the midst of God's judgment on Adam and Eve's sin, we see mercy. Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, talking of of Eve's offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even in his first judgment against sin, God shows mercy. I mean, we understand here, like, God did not have to, right? Like, in a sense, he did because he is a merciful God, but he was not morally obligated to show us mercy, he was in a sense obligated to show mercy because of His character of mercy, but He wasn't obligated morally. He did not owe us the showing and display of mercy. Now, mercy would come because His character of mercy, but it wasn't obligated to us. Morally, God did not owe us mercy, but God displays us mercy. He shows us mercy. He's going to send offspring of Eve who will eventually issue a fatal blow to the evil one. Basically, God is saying in the midst of his judgment that the evil that you have did, I will undo someday. I will set it back to the way I created it to be. We also see mercy in the in the flood. In the midst of God's judgment on the earth, in the midst of this great act of calamity and horrifying scene, look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. See the mercy of God. See the kindness of God wrapped all around this story. He is destroying every breathing animal on the land. Every human being is dead. And in the midst of this, God remembers Noah. Again, mercy. It says that God even made a covenant with Noah. Again, there's no moral obligation on God to display or to issue this covenant with Noah. He says in chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Guys, we cannot walk away from the text and miss the whole picture. These characteristics are almost always seem to be pitted against each other. There's the, right, the holiness and judgment of God pitted against the mercy of God. Yet the Bible's most basic picture of God is that He is both holy, judging of sin, and merciful. He is both. Realize that Scripture reveals God, again, in increasingly clear measure. So here at the beginning, we see that which is so fundamental and so basic that God chooses to reveal this part of Himself first, that He is holy, judging sin, and He is merciful. He is a holy God, and He is merciful. You see, God has always been Merciful. We have this kind of this false dichotomy that the God of the Old Testament is this like you know death loving, blood shedding, holy God in the Old Testament. And then He gets nice and cute and gentle and soft when He when He comes in Jesus in the New Testament. Guys, the fact is that God has been merciful from the very beginning. God has always been merciful. From the very beginning, yet we see the climax, though, of His mercy and the giving of Himself in His Son. The climax of His mercy is in Christ. Right? Self-sacrificing of the Creator of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, where He bore His own wrath in payment for yours and my sin. If that's not mercy, we don't know what mercy is. That is mercy. Adam and Eve, guys, had no hope apart from Christ. Noah had no hope apart from Christ. We have no hope apart from Christ. We are dependent upon no one except Christ for God's mercy and His salvation. We see early on that God is painting the picture that in search for redemption, man has no hope. He is showing us that man has no hope in his search for redemption apart from God. God must reveal this hope to the world. God must provide this hope for the world, and God must sustain this hope for the world, and God must be this hope for the world. Which brings us to the next theme that we see. You see, God can have all of the greatest ideas in the world, and I think certainly we must all confess that his ideas are always awesome and much better than ours? God can be holy, and yet merciful. But think about this: if God can't do anything about it, then just like our ideas to alleviate abortion or to uh, to 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 do away with other evil things, just like those, oftentimes are limited to us. Every time are limited ultimately, as we can't ultimately control abortion and things like that. But God is not limited. God is not sitting at the same vantage point that we are when it comes to His power and ability to reconcile two issues that seem to be very much opposed to each other. God is powerful enough to reconcile two characteristics of his character that seem to be at great odds with each other. Holiness that demands justice and his mercy. Only God is sovereign enough to redeem a sinful people in the midst of his justice-demanding holiness. And thank God that he is, right? Because if He wasn't, then we would be without hope. Because why? Because just because He's merciful, just because He's justice, like He he is holy, demanding justice, if He can't do anything about it, then we're still up the creek without a paddle. Yet God's sovereignty provides for much, but at the very least, The ability to reconcile God's justice demanding holiness and His great mercy. God's sovereignty. Without God's sovereignty, the idea of mercy, the reconciliation and the utilization of mercy and justice and holiness on our behalf is still just a great idea, still theoretical. Clearly, if God is able to think with me, if God is able, well, God can think with me. I meant you think with me. If God is able to create the world, tell the seas where to begin, tell the mountains where to stop, breathe life into man, bring forth flood waters to cover the earth, and tell the winds to hush. He can judge the earth and he can rebuild the earth. If he can do these things and the many other things that we see in these passages, he must be sovereign over all. He created it, then He is its God. We see that He's the creator of everything, so we shouldn't be surprised to think of Him as sovereign over all that He has made. If God is sovereign and God cares about His name as holy, then He will vindicate His name and judge the sin of those who He made in His image. At the same time, God is able to show us mercy. And we should wonder how. He surely has the power to do so. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 24. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles range and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever, what? To do whatever, what? Your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, Herod and Pilate did what God's power and God's will had decided beforehand should happen. Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said that he laid down his life only to take it back up again. It was not Pontius Pilate, it was not Herod, it was not the Jews that took Jesus' life. Jesus said, I lay it down willingly. It is my choice and my choice alone. I am sovereign over my very death. And I am sovereign over taking my life back up again. No one has the kind of authority and sovereignty displayed at the cross like God does. Church, if God has made promises to us as He made to Adam, Eve, and Noah, we can be certain that He has the power to keep those promises. You know, Here at Renovation, we really have a high view of God's sovereignty. And we do so because I think it's biblical. And because Rusty thinks it's biblical. I still think though, you know, if if clearly the depths of God's word are endless, then our understanding of God's sovereignty is just beginning. So when I say we have a high view of God's sovereignty, that certainly is a comparative statement, uh, not an ultimate statement uh, in the sense that we, we understand God's sovereignty you know, to its end. But comparatively, we have a high view of God's sovereignty, and we do so also because it allows us to worship and trust God as we should. If we're going to worship God as holy, and worship God as judge, we're going to worship God as merciful. If He's not sovereign, then none of that does us any good. Why We can't worship a God who is merciful and just but can't do anything about it. You know, sometimes I hear Christians will say that discussing theological issues like God's sovereignty... Is for people who go to seminary. And, of course, I think there are difficult aspects of the doctrine of sovereignty to understand questions, particularly concerning free will and God's sovereignty. How do those things fit together? But we certainly don't honor God when we dismiss the hard questions for someone else to handle. We are all students of the Word. We should be. If we're going to understand God's sovereignty, we've got to go to the Word to understand God's sovereignty, not dismiss it. We need to know His sovereignty if we as a church intend to trust Him wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly. If we're going to trust Him, we can't trust Him if He is not sovereign and can do anything about it. He must be sovereign if we intend to trust Him. So throughout the course of Genesis 1-11, through we see God build the very foundation of His character, holy, judge, merciful, sovereign. But what we also see throughout the Scriptures, throughout these 11 passages, is what man's response should be, must be, has to be, but won't always be to this God. Man's response must be obedience and faith. Again, so fundamental to God's plan, He reveals it in the very beginning, is man's response of obedience and faith. From the very beginning. God reveals Himself and His plan, again, in increasing measure. But our obedience and faith has always been fundamental to God's plan. Again, this is not some New Testament idea. Like, faith and obedience didn't just come about after Ephesians 2, okay? Like, it came about before that. This has been God's plan all along. We see from the very beginning that we should believe God's words... And we should obey God's words. We should believe who God is and who He says He is and obey what God says and who He says we should be. Noah obeyed. Noah obeyed, had faith. And yet the words even say He was evil. I want you to listen to these words that Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 37. It says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving them marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is just likening his coming and judgment, future coming judgment, just similarly to Noah, And that there were those who were righteous and kept by God, same thing today, and yet the evilness that surrounded the flood, there will be evilness that surrounds the coming of Christ. But here's what God says of Noah in comparison to the rest of the world back in Genesis chapter 6. Notice what the text says about Noah. Chapter 6, verse 9 of Genesis. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Genesis 6, 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Genesis 7, 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. What do we see going on with Noah? I mean, think about this. Think about what, like we, like, we think about the, like, the audacious task, like the crazy task of building this big old ark. Well, think about the faith and the obedience exercised in Noah going, Oh, okay, yeah, all right, God. Got it, man. Let's do this. I mean, it's like you and I, like, going, okay, I'm going to build a skyscraper because God told me me to, and I'm going to do it all myself. Like, sweet. Like, think about the faith and the obedience exercised by Noah. But the Bible also says that Noah was evil. Genesis 8 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Notice that Noah's name is not excluded from this statement. There is no, from the context, the exclusion of Noah, the fact that his heart is still evil. But instead, Noah is called righteous in the same way that we should be called righteous. And that is we should stand out comparatively blameless from the world around us. Noah stood out comparatively righteous from the world that surrounded him. Your life should look different. Your life bears a testimony. This is why we as a church don't want people to be a member here if they ever stop living in a manner worthy of their calling as a Christian. Because we are to be set apart. That's why we don't want members who don't live the way God has called them to live. Now, here's the difference. Again, like we don't remove people from membership because of sin. Remove member, people from membership because of unrepentance. Right? Because repentance is evidence of a righteous heart where Jesus indwells that heart. Therefore, it springs forth unrepentance. The heart, we still struggle with sin, so that's still going to be present. But what you see here is you see Noah, who still has an evil heart, but he walks in repentance with God. That's what's going on in Genesis. Noah is all walking with God. But how did Noah live in a comparatively righteous way? Did he just do more good things than those around him? I mean, if that's a logical question we have to ask, what is it? We just have to do more good things than the people around me. No, instead, Noah believed. This is what it looked like for Noah to walk in a comparatively righteous way, and it should be the same for us. And that was Noah believed the promises of God and responded to God's words and faith. He trusted that God was who he said he was and that God would do as he said he would do. So by faith, in Hebrews eleven seven 7, it says this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, right? Yet unseen, being warned of God by things that were in the future that he had not yet seen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by what? By faith an heir of the righteousness. So my question to us today is, what is our response to God today? Are you searching His words? Are you obeying His words? Are you trusting in His words? Are you living in faithful obedience to His words? We are called to trust and obey Him. If God is sovereign, we need to ask questions like, what does that mean for us? What are the implications? If God is holy, what does that mean for us? What are the implications? If God is judge, what does that mean for us? So if God is merciful, what does that mean? Now lastly, I want you to think about this with me. We're almost done. Think about the garden with me. But not the garden that's in Genesis. But the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was at. In the first garden, Adam chose his own way, right? He so said, It's going to be my way, God. In the second garden, the second Adam, Jesus, chose God's way, he chose obedience. My prayer is that we would do the same. That as He, Jesus, who lives in us, chose God's way, that we would be found choosing God's way as He who lives in us lives that out and completes the work that He began. You know, I have to say this at this point. If you're not choosing God's way, then maybe, maybe, You're not a follower of Christ. Let me encourage you to cast yourself before the mercy of God. Repent for your sins and trust in Jesus as the payment for those sins to a just and holy God. For those who consider themselves, even after John, as followers of Christ and you're enjoying that assurance, understand this that the call to righteousness, to holiness, to obey God's commands and live faithfully to God, that you cannot do that yourself. But Jesus did that for you, right? We know this. Jesus did that. So we depend on Him. We place our trust in Him. And then as we are trusting in His faithfulness and His obedience, then we live that out. But I think oftentimes we fail to live out This holy, the holiness that God's called us to, the righteousness, because we don't understand God's holiness, God's righteousness. And then maybe we get discouraged when we begin to fail, and that's probably because oftentimes we forget about God's mercy. That God is merciful in the midst of his justice and his righteousness and holiness, God is still merciful. For those of us, who, who beat ourselves up because we're failing to be holy and righteous, we forget God has shown you great mercy in God, in His Son Christ, I should say. And for those of us who are lackadaisical when it comes to pursuit of holiness, we forget that God is holy. So it ask: do you have a balance? Does your life display a balance of understanding God's mercy and God's holiness or do you have an over-realized holiness of God or an over to the exclusion of God's mercy or an over-realized understanding of God's mercy to the exclusion or to the demise of God's holiness in your life where they both say God shows a beautiful picture here from the beginning he is both just and holy but he is merciful he is merciful And we can't emphasize one to the exclusion or the demise of the other. Trust that he is holy. But what's beautiful is that in his mercy he has provided a means for us to be holy. Right? He has set us free from the captivating life of sin that we struggle to leave behind so that we could be holy and worship him who is holy. So just encourage us guys if Let's pursue holiness, but let's understand. We can't pursue, like our pursuing holiness and stuff is very limited to our understanding that God is holy. And it's very limited to our understanding of God's mercy. So let's grasp both of them. Let's study the God who's revealed. Let's not begin in our lives with what do I need to do? Like to live out this life. Let's begin with who is God? Now, how do we live in light of who God is? Let's do that. Let me pray for us and and, uh, uh, we'll sing one more song this morning and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. And Father, I thank you that you are not just a holy and righteous God, but you are merciful. And Father, I pray that that we would be a people that display mercy, not because we're supposed to display mercy, but because we understand the mercy that has been shown to us. And Father, I pray that we would live holy and righteous lives, but not because it's just what we're supposed to do, but because He who created us is holy and righteous. And Father, that we too would seek the judgment of sin, both not just in those around us, but we would seek the judgment of sin in our own lives because it brings you glory as your holiness is satisfied. And then, Father, I pray that in seeking that judgment of sin in our lives and the lives of those around us that we would also desire your sweet mercy. We understand that that mercy only comes through your work, through your Son, Jesus. Christ. So Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me.